This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass in here. You can in here and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get it back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. Is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to. to Get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to another season of Behind Gray Walls, Yay. a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I'm in the studio with Sky. In the studio, Woo. just for a little bit, though. I've loved all of these little side stories you've been oh, doing. Yeah, so thank you. Great of course. Work. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, like, I feel like even when we're not, like, literally telling the stories in the way that we are right now like all of their stories have been so fascinating mm-hmm. you know they all there's not one that i'm like oh this one's kind of boring like right. even if their crime was just like forging a check like so many interesting things and frankly i got real lucky that i just happened to randomly pick because i just literally got on a random number generator and just like bloop three two three six perfect like that's what we're doing oh, and awesome. you know it's super super good stuff so. yeah yeah that's man that's just this place like mm-hmm. if you look hard enough like oh man you find some amazing connections mm-hmm. amazing stories mm-hmm. <sighs> so cool it is cool. what have you been up to this summer anthony uh, a lot and a little <laughs> like you know gigging here and there but then like not rehearsing too much so it's a lot of showing up to a gig because they need live music and ask the night before to do a gig sort of thing so it's been rough but luckily you know everybody's been dying for live music Mm -hmm. and just to have that like see people's joy and have people get out of their chairs and dance just like it's it's filled my heart (laughs) i know it's cheesy but seriously like that's i've missed that so much Oh, I've also been <laughs> became a dungeon master. Yeah, been leading some uh, dungeon world. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I use a lot of what we take here to create mm, situations. Especially, sense. we have a thief in our crew. Cool. Anyway, I always try and tempt him with everything. It's always That's very <laughs> fun. You can create the world, and you can think of like they'll solve this situation this way. It's right, so right. obvious. And they never do. Oh, and that's, I mean, when we're looking at corrections, it's the same <laughs> yeah. thing. Like, yeah, right. everyone thinks so differently. Totally. You can't make one solution that'll fit for everybody. How about you? What's your summer? Oh, not not too much. I've been working on the pod. I've been doing some studying for comprehensive exams that are coming nice. up in the spring. Ugh. And I've been doing a lot of mountain biking with my dad, which nice. has been super fun. Um, my dad will appreciate this story. So yesterday we were we went up to a trail that's like up like a couple miles away from Bogus Basin, mm-hmm. and it was all mostly downhill, which was super fun. Like nice. you get all the fun without all the work. But we had to climb up at the end. But anyway, 
so there it's we were in the actual mountains because like some of our trails are just in the foothills and stuff Mm -hmm. and so the trail's pretty small and i remember thinking as we were riding like we're on the side of a mountain like it's not like a sheer cliff but like if i fall like i'm falling down a mountainside (laughs) and i was like very freaked out by that (sighs) so the some of it was pretty rocky and i'm like still like a baby beginner like i'm Mm -hmm. not i haven't figured out my balance yet like there's just things i haven't quite mastered and but we were going over a bunch of rocks and i was doing really well and then we came upon this area where there were two boulders mm-hmm. that were, they seemed really close together. And I should have known that like people ride this all the time. Handlebars yeah. must fit through it, but I kind of panicked. And so I tried to turn one of my handlebars and the the rock on the other side caught my handlebar. And oh. so I went flying over oh, to the side gosh. of the trail. And this is my dad's perspective. So he says he's, cause he's in front of me. I can't see him anymore. And he just hears this like, <sighs> and then he just hears me go, Dad, I need help. (laughs) And so he comes sprinting back up the trail on his bike. And he like, I can only imagine how how pathetic of a scene this must have been that like, so I am like, basically, I'm facing the trail. My back is in this tree. My hands are like on the tree, but they're not on the ground. So I can't get any like purchase to stand up. My my left knee is like folded underneath me. And so then the bike is like, kind of technically in between my legs and my right leg is on top of my tire and I just so like I see my dad riding up and I was just like dad I'm stuck (laughs) and he was like yeah you are (laughs) and so anyway so we get all untangled I was totally fine like I have a couple scrapes is all but I just was like man (laughs) I wish I wish I could go on a like a mountain biking trip and like not fall off because my record is not good but I have been it's been a lot of fun it's been some good quality time with my dad that I don't get because I'm away so often and and then of course it's so nice to be like riding mountain bikes you know around the the Idaho mountains which is I don't get to do in Texas so loved it been that's a great awesome. summer. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. But anyway, whew, yeah. we've been on a tangent, but yes, I think it's have. been fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's everyone, been a yeah. long time since we've done this. It There's has been. Like yeah. Well, a lot on. to catch up on. Yeah. But maybe we should catch up on some inmates. So yes. why don't you start us off with uh, some intense prisoning? Yes. And very creative Yes, fellow. yes. And uh, yeah, you'll, you'll see that. And you'll hear that. Yes. He is just... He's an outlaw through and yeah. through. Yeah, I, I mean, I know one story about him, and it's his most notorious story. But I don't really know much else, and it sounds like he oh is my. a troublemaker. Oh, he—he he might be the most renowned individual mm-hmm. for a particular thing. So mm-hmm, we'll get to mm-hmm. that. So I'm covering Dennis Guy Clark, number one one two two six and number one two three three seven. He would have several more numbers beyond that in other institutions. Mm. My sources are the Idaho Statesman, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, Oral Histories, which you'll hear throughout, CattleFacts.com, Texas State Historical Association, Handbook of Texas Articles on the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, by Donald R. Walker, and that's T-S-H-A-Online.org. There are a lot of Texas in that title, like a lot of the same word Texas in that title, which is frankly not surprising. (laughs) Having lived in Texas, I feel like I've learned a lot about Texans' mindsets, and that seems accurate. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. So if this name, Dennis Clark, sounds familiar, it's probably because most of our guides have told his story, particularly the seven months he spent in solitary confinement in Siberia holding on to a certain particular item, uh, which we have on display in Five House. 
and you can actually go to Five House and see his mugshot and his item that we'll discuss here in a moment. <laughs> and besides having files on Dennis, we also have these two oral histories with him, and one with him and a group of other incarcerated men that was taken in the 90s. And I'll do my best to, like, you know, let him tell his own story, popping in oral histories throughout this episode. So... Dennis Guy Clark was born on March 22, 1945, in Arkansas City, Kansas, to Warren Kerrigan Clark and Ella Mildred Heater Clark. He was the third and middle child of five. He had an older sister, Donna, older brother, Kerrigan, younger sister, Paula, and a younger brother, Daniel. Uh, His father fled Kansas for Idaho when Dennis was about 10 or 11 years old, around 1955-1956, after his youngest brother was born, which he just abandoned the family and his mother. So Dennis was actually taken to the Kansas receiving home and in the custody in the courts from there. He would state that his home was so dysfunctional that he spent most of his childhood in foster care, which included about 40 different foster homes. Whoa, that's too many. That is too many. And, you know, I this is information. I, I can only take that from his oral right. history. So I don't know how honest or true that is, but I, mean, I that's, feel like. Yeah, it, that's a lot of foster um, homes. Yeah, yeah. And I found his father, Warren's 2004 obituary, which revealed that when he made it to Idaho, Warren actually worked at the Pickett Ranch in Oakley, Idaho, which is south of Twin Falls in Burley. And from there, he worked at the Richard Blinko Farm, just southwest of Paul, Idaho, north of Burley. And the Blinko Farm is notable as in the 60s, it was one of 100 farms in the nation wired up with the cattle fax machine. Cattle fax? Cattle fax machine, yeah. The cow is just out yeah. in the field like, hey, yeah. guys, said, hey, <laughs> hey, Betsy, you got a, you got a fax. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, it linked all these cattle feeders to the American, American National Cattlemen's Headquarters in Denver, Colorado. And it compiled the information from these 100 different farms from across the nation and basically gave a breakdown to know, like, what animals were available, how much to sell them for. But I saw cattle facts, and I was like, okay, what is this? I, I have yeah, to know. right. It's, <laughs> so, that's, there's nothing better than what I imagined yeah, yeah. Is, as a cattle facts. Right, and it's still active today. Like, huh. they still have a cattle facts, you know, all I'm interested, I'm, is it, so it's still called a cattle facts? It isn't, like, they haven't changed it to, like... You know, anything yeah. more modern? It It is more modern now. It's right. So it's still run by that national uh-huh. uh, American National Cattlemen's Headquarters in Denver. And now they are mostly analysts for the beef and agriculture industry. But, gotcha. I mean, it was the same one they started up back then. Mm. And uh, Warren also worked at the Amalgamated Sugar Factory. And the oldest factory that is still in operation today is in Twin Falls. Mm. So probably worked at that one. And actually, here's a fun fact. My dad's good friend, he got a contract with Amalgamated Sugar doing his, like, mining business, whatever it is that he does. I'm not completely sure. But that's – my mom told me that. I was like, that's actually, like, a big company. So, yeah. Nice. Connections. Yeah, that's it. I figured. I was like – you know, people are going to know these Yeah, yeah, places. totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, this was actually built in 1916. So in the 60s is when he's working there. And there's another mini factory set up in Paul. So he could have mm. been in Twin Falls or Paul. Sure. Uh, a few years after being abandoned in Kansas, the rest of the family actually moved to Idaho. And his parents divorced and his mother moved to Weezer while his dad remained near Paul, Twin Falls, that kind of central Idaho area. And Dennis started working odd jobs around Burley. And around the age of 15 in 1960, he was uh, working basically as a farm laborer and learned to operate tractors. He also worked at Richard Blinko's farm for a short time. 
It was around this time that he got into his first real trouble. Dennis entered St. Anthony on May 2nd, 1960 for, quote, shacking up with a 15-year-old girl at Midvale, Idaho, end quote. So they were both about 15 when this occurred. I don't like that. And I'm, the, I guess I should say I prefer it with two people who are the same age, but that's still very young. 15, yeah. Too young. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, he gets busted. And the charge, according to the Tallahassee Democrat in Florida, was, quote, rape, transporting <sighs> a minor across a state line and breaking and entering, end quote. So we'll get to why that was written in Florida in one moment. But for new listeners, St. Anthony was actually Idaho's industrial school for juvenile offenders north of Idaho Falls near the Wyoming border. And I could not find any details about the crime itself, but I did find that Dennis and his partner Melvin Haggard escaped the industrial school either on July 27th or August 11th, 1960. So he wasn't there very long. Mm -hmm. And knowing what I know about Dennis Clark, he may have escaped on both of those dates. Right. Um, but the prison file states July and newspapers state August. So hmm. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. A, a lot of his file is that way. Hmm. Regardless, Dennis and Melvin stole a 1956 Pontiac in Ashton, Idaho, wrecked it, abandoned it in Rexburg, Idaho, stole a 1950 Plymouth and drove that to Laramie, Wyoming. And then I don't know if they stole another vehicle, but somehow they drove across the country and south, making it all the way to Tallahassee, Florida, where they stopped in at a drive-in called the Tip Top on August 26th, 1960. So about two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. Ish. And while at the drive-in, they requested that the tray not be left attached to the car door, which made the manager a little bit suspicious. He's like, these kids, these are like 15, 16-year-old kids like, in this nice new car. Mm. Something's going on. So he alerted the Florida Highway Police, and they had a station nearby. When the boys left, the police were waiting nearby and arrested them. And they were suspected of breaking into a home in Baghdad, Florida, and were looking at a federal crime of crossing state lines with a stolen vehicle. These were some pretty serious charges for a 16- and 17-year-old Dennis and Melvin. And to avoid all of this, the duo decided they would skip town. So on October 2nd, they used a wire to trip the cell block door, opening it right up. What? They walked out of their cell. They climbed to the top of the cell block. And from there, they worked their way into the ceiling, like a sort of attic space, and came to an opening at the end that had a 30-foot drop straight down to a stairwell. So they took their blankets, they knotted them together, and they made this little sheet rope and slid down that into the stairwell, effectively escaping the jail and landing in the main courtroom of the jail. And from here, they had no trouble walking right out the door. They boarded a freight train and rode it to Pritchard, Alabama. From there, they stated that they slept under a railroad bridge for three nights before going to town at an early hour, and authorities in Pritchard arrested them, probably because it was in the middle of the night. There's one of these teenagers doing Seriously? out here. They probably looked pretty haggard and, mm. and sleeping under a bridge for several days. So authorities in Florida and back at St. Anthony were alerted, and Idaho authorities actually told them that they didn't want either of them back in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> so they were sent back to their cells in Milton, Florida once again. And due to Dennis being a juvenile, I actually had to search Melvin's name for all of this mm. information in the newspaper to uncover anything. But according to Dennis's file, he escaped again in January of 1961, about five months later. Huh. 
I couldn't find out what day and how he went about it. Uh, by the end of January 1961, Melvin escaped again and, with three other young men, and they actually slid down a 20-foot temporary gas line and that was installed in the, in the jail there and stole a 1959 Chevy station wagon. Uh, he wasn't out long. He was captured pretty soon after. Um, Dennis actually reportedly returned to Idaho and turned himself in back into St. Anthony by June of 1961. <laughs> but, okay, but were the authorities like, I mean, thanks, I guess. Right. We don't really want <laughs> you here. I think so. I think that was part of it. The uh, Milton jail may have been a, a little tougher than St. Anthony is kind of my mm. guess. That. So he was actually released on parole in December of 1961, returned as a parole violator in July of 62, and escaped once again, never to be returned to the industrial school. Now he was old enough to be charged as an adult. Two months later, in September 1962, Dennis was busted for forgery in Burley. He was lodged in the Burley jail under an alias, his older brother's name, Lee Kerrigan Clark. Well, that's not fair to his brother. <laughs> right? But he didn't plan to stay there for long because on September 26th, Dennis got out of his cell and into the main breezeway somehow and, like the built-in jail, climbed to the top of the cells and actually punched a hole in the roof and found his way out. What? I know. What? And I think there was one file, one little newspaper clipping that sound, sounded like he found a pole and kind of punched a hole with okay. a, a metal rod or something. Okay. I yeah. just was like, sorry. He just was like, I'm going to put <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> through. Like, we have many issues. <laughs> yeah. This guy is, he's an artist when it comes to no escapes. No kidding. He headed west to Weezer, where his mother was living on the Idaho-Oregon border, the next day. And there he would find himself in yet another spot of trouble. On September 27th, 1962, around 2 a.m., Dennis went to the East Side Grocery and Fruit Market in Weezer. He pried two-by-fours that covered a window, then broke the window and crawled inside. He looted around $35 in coins, like rolled coins, and a 32 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. He was arrested less than 12 hours later when an off-duty city police officer spotted him and informed Chief Pearson of that town. And Dennis was arrested. Authorities found the coins and the pistol in his possession. He was looking at charges for burglary and lodged in the Weezer jail, and he remained in the jail through the summer, fall, and in December of 1962, after pleading guilty, 17-year-old Dennis Clark was given a withheld sentence of three years plus four months in the county jail with other special probation provisions. So withheld judgment and withheld sentences means that if you plead guilty to a charge in Idaho, typically your first and hopefully only charge, you will be sentenced to serve time and pay fines. But after you've completed your punishment, you can have the court dismiss the case retroactively, basically keeping your background clean of any convictions. Uh, the judge, despite probably knowing Dennis's background at St. Anthony, hoped that by doing this, Dennis would stay out of trouble. You know, he'd do his time, get out, stay out of trouble. and That's a risk. <sighs> it's yeah. like one of those things where you're just like, I'm going to see if this works. And if right. not, like, I kind of look like a fool. But if it mm -hmm. works, I'm going to look like a genius. Yeah, I think, you know. But he, yeah. kid. I'm not gonna put him in yeah. jail in prison for four years. Like, so he commuted his sentence to four months in the Washington County Jail and three years on probation. Around 11 p.m. on February 23rd, 1963, Mike Waitley, the night radio man at the jail, was uh, locking the prisoners in their cells for the night. Dennis and 70-year-old Michael Gotham waited behind a dark pillar in the jail for Waitley to go to their cell. They rushed behind him 
shoved him inside. Mm-hmm. They took his keys and locked him in their cell before fleeing. Okay, that happens a lot, actually. I know. Like I, two of the like off-season stories that I did had something like that, yeah. which is like, how does this keep happening? Like, what? I, blind spots. They I guess, are. Yeah. yeah, a lot of these jails weren't designed True. thinking you'd have these this sort of situation. So yeah, they they rushed him and they uh, took his keys, locked him in. They hopped on a freight train to Ontario, Oregon, and hopped off and stole a car and drove it to Huntington. There, they dumped the vehicle for another and drove it to the Dalles, where they dumped that vehicle for another and drove it to Salem, Oregon. And in Salem, they picked up another vehicle and drove it to Albany. They took their fifth car in Albany and drove it to Roseburg, where they dumped it off and stole their sixth and final car, which they were arrested in Medford, Oregon. And when officers questioned them, they admitted to robbing a business near Hermiston and a house at the Dalles where they stole an electric razor, a movie camera, and some beer. So <laughs> they signed papers of extradition and were brought back to Idaho. And Dennis lost his last chance handed to him. The judge charged him with first-degree burglary and sentenced him to 10 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. He arrived on March 4th, 1963, weeks before his 19th birthday. So Dennis Guy Clark, number 11226, age 18 now. Birthday, March 22nd, 1945. Crime, burglary in the nighttime. Plea, guilty. Sentence, 10 years. Date received, March 4th, 63. County, Washington. Sex, male. Race, one-quarter Cherokee Indian and white. Nationality, American, Irish, Dutch, Indian descent. Birthplace, Arkansas City, Kansas. Uh, eyes blue, hair brown, height 5 feet 4 and 3 quarters inches tall. Weight 111 pounds, complexion medium, build small. Deformities, the tip of index finger on left hand amputated. Little toe on each foot has no nail. Oh. Yeah, I know. That would go throughout each of his intakes. I was like, weird. Uh, maybe he was born without them. I'm not sure. Huh. Uh, he circumcised, not vaccinated, had only two tattoos at this point, drank and smoked, but didn't gamble or do drugs, and he was raised Catholic. Was he a communist? Uh, you know, it's not on here. <laughs> Dang but it. You'd he think could it be, was right yeah. around that time. <laughs> Education, quote, believes he completed the 10th grade, end quote, at the Idaho State Industrial School in St. Anthony. He wrote that he, quote, just attended school in St. Anthony, was never told the grade he was in, end quote. Hmm. Yeah. Is I, this the in, the mugshot that we have where he almost, he has like black eyeliner on? Yeah. Where he just like, is looking like me in eighth grade, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Raccoonize. Uh-huh. Occupation farm laborer, residence in Idaho four years. He had scars and moles all over his face and arms, and the nail on his little toe of both his right and left feet were missing. And the most grisly are the two-inch square scars on his left forearm, the back of his right arm, and his left shin, quote, where tattoo has been removed, end quote. Oh, man. So he had, like, cut out tattoos, cut his flesh to to remove a tattoo. go deep. Yeah. Yeah. He also had L-O-V-E across the knuckles of his left hand and the initials D-C on his left arm. For I was hoping he'd have, like, the typical, like, one love, says love and the yeah. other says hey, and then he, like, says something yeah. all witty before he, like, punches yeah. someone. <laughs> yeah, so 
Authorities gave Dennis the opportunity to go to school almost immediately upon arrival. He was put in the receiving slash classification ward, which at that time was in number one house, or what we call the 1890 cell house. And he was allowed to take classes at the school in number two yard. Yeah, they, when they brought me in there, they uh, receiving, they call it fish row. And it was in one house. And uh, you come in, they, they brought you in the old tunnel, out here in the old tunnel. And they took you in there and they stripped you down. They put you in three walls and, and a size 14 broke in. They fit everybody, you know. And uh, they put you in fish row. And one house, the cells there was, uh, let's see, they still have cells in two houses, don't they? Yeah, they would vary the same same difference. You had a straw mattress, a uh, bucket for toilet facilities, bucket for water. I spent about, uh, I don't really recall too much of it. I was kind of, I was pretty scared. You know, I was just 17, just the first time I come to the joint. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I spent about two weeks in there. I went through some, they tested me at the school, and then they, they turned me out on the yard, put me in the Fort house. Fort house, then they had one tier where they kept uh, everyone under 21 years of age. And, uh, they put me in Fort house there. And I guess I was there probably three months. I tried to escape. You know, I remember when I first went in there that I was pulled aside and I says, this is the way it is here. You don't snitch on people. You do your own time. You don't make a lot of noise here because you do, you get hurt. You know? And uh, and that's just not how it was there. You, know, you either act like a man or you got hurt there or something far worse. You know? After just a little over a month in school, Dennis dropped his classes and asked to work in the tag plant, making license plates and signs, which he began on April 29th. It's while he worked in the plant that he hatched up his newest escape. Sure. On June 27th, 1963, at 9 a.m., Dennis Clark and 34-year-old Robert Lee Tisdale, number 8443, vanished from the institution without a trace. When asked to comment, Warden Clapp said simply, quote, They're missing, period. Oh, no. <laughs> that was all he would tell authorities. <laughs> Officers suspected that they had escaped by jumping on a truck that left the prison because there was literally no trace of a cut fence or, or hmm. anything. Uh, mass shakedowns of the entire prison occurred. And just in case, Warden Clapp had massive floodlights stationed on number two yard, flipped on all night long. And finally, on July 3rd, just under a week, a guard in one of the towers thought he saw a figure dart between buildings in number two yard in the middle of the night. Now, number two yard is supposed to be empty, of course. Quickly, he called for backup, and a search was organized, and number two was searched yet again. But this time, they found Robert and Dennis hiding in the projection booth of the theater in number two yard. Asked how this could happen, Warren Clapp said, quote, if anyone had told me two guys could have hid out inside the prison for that length of the time, I would have said he's crazy, end quote. So, uh, so they were hiding in Two Yard for how long? For just under a week, about six days. Why would you stay in the prison? Right. He asked them, and he got two stories, neither of which he believed. Uh, they said they had hid in number Two Yard for six days. They buried themselves in dirt during the day. Or hid in, like, nooks in the buildings, <laughs> literally surviving off candy bars that they had bought from the commissary and had in their pockets oh when they went over there. So, But they ran out after, like, three days, 
And so they were just like hoping for guys to sneak food to them but when they I, were going into work in two yards. I just don't like. Did they think indefinitely? They. I have so many questions. Like, did they think yeah. that like we'll just live here until the prison shut? Like, what's their end? Like, why are we not yeah. escaping over the wall in the middle of the night? Like, I think that floodlight is <sighs> what ended that chance for them yeah because i think they were hoping they flip the light off we'll go over Mm. at night they won't be any the wiser so yeah robert tisdell was taken to siberia as he was serving a life sentence and had been seen as more dangerous than you know this teenage kid dennis was actually taken to five house for punishment and placed in cell 3d on the second floor five house i was in five house about a month and I'd tell you there, he, uh, he got mad. And he burned his mattress up and tore his cell up. And they took him to Siberia. So I waited a couple of days. I knew he was over there by himself. So I tore my cell up and everything. And I went over to be with him. And uh, I spent seven months in Siberia. And uh, so we left back. On July 16th, he was moved. His file didn't include information on the infraction, and he spent seven months in Siberia clinging onto his spoon, which you can see in Five House on display. So when you say the first cell of Siberia, is it the open one that we, like, always, like, people can go into when you go into Siberia, or is it the one on the other end? It's the one on the other end. Yeah, actually, through his oral history, I finally discovered the numbering system. So the one that's open is number 12, and the one that has the plaques on it to the left is is number one. Gotcha. Yeah. So when we talk about there's one suicide, that was in number one. Mm. And, yeah. So he was uh, actually in the 11th cell, the one just next to the one on the end Mm. for seven months. And on August 11th, he snapped while he was in Siberia and they would give you a little metal tray and he just destroyed it. It was, uh, quote, beyond repair based on what he did. Um, The officer locked his food access door and they actually retrieved the tray from him. And he was put on Lou Clapp's restrictive diet, which was one meal a day served in an ice cream carton because they couldn't trust him with any metal or anything else. Jeez. And here are actually some clips of Dennis discussing holding on to this spoon in these oral histories taken on April 1st, 1982, while he was incarcerated at the Idaho State Correctional Institution. When I was in Siberia, they had me under a restricted diet that... Uh, they had problems with me, like they, they fed in long metal trays, you know. And uh, I was a pretty wild youngster, and they put one in there, and, and I didn't like him out and all that, so I just tore the tray up, you know, after I ate my food to it. After they'd done that a couple of days in a row, and I kept tearing the trays up, and they fed me out of an ice cream cart for seven months when I was in Siberia. First few days, I was there, they fed me out of trays, but I just kept tearing them up, and they started feeding me out of ice cream cart the rest of the time I was there. Once a day. Pass that through the little Yeah, they would fit through that. And uh, they would feed me once a day, and that's all I got, just once a day. But they'd give you a spoon. Yeah, but uh, when I first went in there, I kept my spoon. I'd held the spoon back from my tray, and they never would give you another one. In fact, they never let put, they wouldn't let me out until I gave back that spoon. <laughs> Seven months later, I gave it back to them. But you're supposed to give it back each time they fed Yeah, yeah. Like that, you know, like I kept a spoon and things, and, and when. When I first went down there, and I kept that spoon all the time I was there, and, uh, and that's the reason I never got out of my cell. You know, like there was other guys that they'd get out and get their showers and things, but personally, that I, because I, I had that spoon, 
when it, it was a weapon. I made it a weapon, you know. And uh, I was angry. And uh, they gassed me over that. One of the thoughts, but I just wouldn't do it, you know. And uh, they could have come in there any time and took it. And so I was just a kid. But uh, it become a, become a, a thing with me over that spoon, you know. And, and I kept that spoon until the day they said they let me out of there. And I went through a lot of problems over it, you know. But uh, they never opened myself for seven months because of that was the only power he had was to right. was to do that and in reflecting on what being in Siberia did to him Dennis responds probably the most valuable lesson I learned from this is I can handle it you know I just knew that even from that, that point on in my life that, that I knew that there was nothing really man could ever do to me and I figured I'd, I'd basically he'd get me in the bottom and, and I could handle it and uh, in a way, it was it was helpful, and then in other ways, it was it was hurtful because I knew that there was nothing they could really do to me. There was no amount of punishment that they could do to, to break me. I just knew that. You know, I just knew that. Yeah. There was no amount of punishment they could do to break me, and right, and you know, that's. That's it. Like he learns that right away. Like this is the worst thing that you can do to me in prison, and I'm fine. Like. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Yeah, he did lose some things. Yeah, and so I was always projecting into the future something better. Because, you know, looking back at my past, I had a very troubled mom, very troubled past. And I was just a baby, I was just a youngster when uh, I first went to the joint. I'd done all the time in Sunbury. And, uh, and I'd come up out of my 40 foster homes, uh, two or three institutions, reform school, you know. And uh, there was nothing good in my past that I could look back to. I could look back before I was seven years old and see my mother. I loved my mom. Yeah. And, uh, but that was the only good thing in my life. And uh, so I never thought about the past. I'd always look at the future. And uh, and I would always fantasize with something better. Yeah. I was always looking for something better. Always something to eat. I was always hungry. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but it burned something out of me. You know, like, uh, I used to have a real vivid imagination, you know, where I could fantasize, like, sit back and close my eyes and dream, you know, and actually build dreams in my mind. And, uh, and that's all I had there. And uh, month in and month out, month in and month out, now I can't, it's, it's gone in me. I don't have no fantasies, you know. And uh, because all the fantasies that I spun, you know, the, the ones that become a reality, wasn't the truth. But there's that aspect of me that just it just totally burned out of me. Is it fantasizing? You know? And he's what twenty at this point? Maybe is he still only nineteen? Yeah, I think he's nineteen. Yeah, nineteen year old. Yeah, he actually was taken to Five House just for a really brief time in October. Made it eight days before authorities shook down his cell and found a heavy wire, like ones used to tie a broom to a wooden handle, that was straightened out, sharpened, and hidden in his toilet in Five House. And when asked about the presumed weapon, Dennis told the officer, "Quote, he didn't know anything about it." End quote and sent back to Siberia. And it appears he returned to Five House in early December to his cell for a, uh, but was showing agitation and insolence towards the guard again and returned to Siberia. 
his sister actually wrote a letter to him in early December asking why she couldn't visit him and what trouble he must have gotten himself in. And Warren Clapp responded, quote, the length of time subject will serve in detention depends upon himself, his attitude, conduct, and cooperation. As of this date, his attitude is very poor. His physical condition is satisfactory. <laughs> so it's a very, you know, Luke Clapp, like, yep. you know, this is up to him. You know, nothing you or I can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of the month, his sister wrote another letter asking if she could meet with the warden Clapp to discuss Dennis and his childhood and noting how busy he must be. You know, what's the chance I could do that? And warden Clapp responded January 7th of 64 that Dennis was serving new punishment for having contraband in his cell and wearing uh, other prisoners' clothing that he somehow got a hold of. <laughs> Uh, he did leave his door open for her, saying, quote, It is not necessary for you to make an appointment, appointment, but it is more convenient if you can make an appointment. I'm in my office on weekdays, but I do not have definite office hours on Saturday or Sunday, end quote. So just like, you know, come by. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk to you. Finally, February 3rd, 1964, Dennis was moved to number three house and put in temporary deadlock to see if he would change his attitude. Two days later, he was given a job back at the tag plant, and he lived in cell 7A on the first floor of number three house. So you can see that when you go in there. In September, he got a job as a waiter in the chow hall, and his mother visited in July. Dennis made her some souvenirs from the hobby shop. Mm-hmm. He had wallets and purses. Apparently, she she paid for them, but then left them. And so she wrote mm-hmm. a, a letter to the new warden, Mark Maxwell, mm-hmm. asking, you know, can we hold on to these for when I can visit again? And there's kind of a guarantee that she'd come mm-hmm. back and see her son. Mm-hmm. And she would continue to see her son until she moved back to Kansas. So Dennis, he seemed to have kind of learned this lesson. He's like, okay, I don't want to be in Siberia anymore. And he stayed out of trouble. He moved a few cells down in number three house to 3A with three other men. And by January of 65, he moved from the dining hall back to number two yard to work in the body shop where he was learning automotive repair. And he was writing to the parole board asking to be released so he could return home to take care of his mother and get a job working in auto body and fender work. Luke Clapp, Mark Maxwell, and Saul Clark had him examined by State Hospital South and noted that he had stayed out of trouble for over a year. They agreed to release him. Okay. Wow. He's like, he's not, he's figuring things, something out anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's just the the right amount of punishment in there. Yeah, yeah. And he's discharged from the Iowa State Penitentiary on April 6th, 1965. He walked out with two billfolds, three keys, one watch charm, 12 wallets, and two eyeglass cases. So he kept himself busy making hobby shop items, which is good. He was sent back to Burley to face charges from his September 1962 escape from the jail in Burley. And the judge gave Dennis one year of probation in lieu of withheld judgment. And he'd face three years back in the penitentiary for breaking jail if he screwed up on probation. It didn't take long. Yeah, so <laughs> Dennis was arrested and charged with 10 counts of forgery and lodged Ugh. in the Minidoka County Jail in December 1965. The jail couldn't hold him or others for very long. Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> On December 12, 1965, Dennis and five others escaped. According to authorities, they didn't know it actually happened until one of the escapees, a woman named Judy Bromberger, returned to the jail at 6.15 in the morning and gave herself up. Authorities rushed to the jail and found it empty. And There were two Army AWOLs. Uh, they were Helbert Bridger and Robert L. Knight. 
and Forgers, James Given, Eugene Smith, Ralph Poindexter, and Dennis Clark were all missing with the keys mm. to the jail and a pistol from the sheriff's uh, office. Gosh, okay. <laughs> so eight men remained in the cell despite the door being open. So, you know, more than half stayed behind. They're like, nope, I don't want to get any more trouble. Uh, Seems so. like the smart thing to do. Yes. Dennis. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it was suspected that actually someone broke into the courthouse where the sheriff had the keys around 2 a.m. and then entered the jail and released the prisoners. So someone broke in to release these men. <sighs> was the so the sheriff wasn't there though? Yeah, this no, isn't the this isn't there. like a. I'm thinking of like that Disney movie Robin Hood where like the sheriff of Nottingham is like sleeping and whoever right. it is like sneaks up and is like able to untie whatever. Yeah. It actually might be King John, but. <laughs> It's, it wasn't one of those situations. Uh-uh, okay. Yeah. The next day, Ralph Poindexter, Eugene Schmidt, and Robert Knight were arrested in Colorado in a stolen 1961 Chevrolet that was hotwired in Rupert right after their escape. Wow. They were returned to Minidoka County Jail. A new white two-door 1964 Ford Galaxy with a red interior was also stolen. Ooh, that sounds pretty. Yeah, I, I had to look it up, and I was like, That's pretty. I would drive that, yeah. <laughs> Authorities discovered it in southern central Utah, a town called Richfield, which had oh, a yeah. rash of burglaries throughout the town and matching footprints around the abandoned galaxy and the burglarized sites. Dennis and his two companions, James Givens and Halbert Bridger, were still on the lam. While authorities were busy tracking down the three remaining escapees, Ralph Poindexter and Eugene Schmidt escaped again from the county jail on December 19th. They sawed their way out of their solitary confinement cells, broke out of the jail's main cell area around midnight. The two then returned to the same 1961 Chevrolet, hotwired it again, (laughs) and stole it for a second time before abandoning it in Hazleton, Idaho, east of Twin Falls. This time it'll really work. Hopefully. Oh my (laughs) gosh. Maybe I'll lock my doors after this next one. Third time's a charm. So two days later, Dennis's companions were arrested in Arkansas without Dennis. They were driving a car they had stolen from Texas. The Arkansas authorities alerted Idaho's authorities that Dennis Clark might be locked up in Texas. Dennis committed several robberies in Texas. In Sierra and Blanca, he broke into a grocery store using a hammer, screwdriver, and tire tool, and pried the safe open and took about $1,600. He broke into a Chevrolet motor in Anthony, Texas, and was trying to break into the safe but failed to do so. He actually said he heard a car, somebody outside, and so he just sat there all night long until he heard them leave. Just before they opened, he climbed back out. And he would go in through, like, the air conditioning unit. He would pry that up and go into the roof. Yeah, he was small. 111 pounds? Mm -hmm. That's insane. I'd love to know what that was like. (laughs) Right. Uh, finally, on December 31st, authorities in Juarez, Mexico, <laughs> reported the arrest of Dennis Clark, who was driving a vehicle stolen in Texas and taken across international lines. Oh. When they searched his vehicle, they found two pistols in it. By January 6, 1966, all six men had been recaptured as Ralph Poindexter was arrested in Bakersfield, California, and Eugene Schmidt was picked up in Needles, California. Instead of returning to Idaho right away, Dennis was convicted by the state of Texas. That's not where you want to be. No, yeah. He uh, received an eight-year sentence for burglary, two counts, and was incarcerated at Huntsville, Texas on March 15, 1966, as number 188267 under the Texas Department of Corrections. 
The Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville, known as The Walls, was the state's first enclosed prison that is still active today. The first prisoners arrived on October 1, 1849. Like Idaho's prison, Texas found work to keep prisoners busy. Cotton and woolen mills were established, which even created a surplus during the Civil War as material were provided to the Confederate Army. And after the Civil War, a, quote, convict lease system, end quote, was established in which prisoners were leased out to local farms as laborers outside the walls. This provided uh, more money for Texas to keep building prison institutions, which were essential as lawlessness grew with the collapse of the Confederacy and taxpayers unwilling to pay more taxes for more prisons. Over the next hundred years, many programs were improved for prisoners as religious services were offered. The convict lease system was ended in place of prisoners working state-owned farms and cattle ranches instead of private ones. A cannery was established, a license plate factory was established, and several progressive programs in the 1940s and 50s, including cleaning up cell blocks, updating equipment, and the improvement of accounting practices and expanding rehabilitation programs. And they also improved the salaries and training of staff. Like Much like Idaho, there was not very much training for officers there. Now, between 1961 and 1972, when Dennis is incarcerated there, uh, several programs were expanded, including offering college courses to prisoners, completion of a new diagnostic center, and the completion of a new cell block for first-time offenders. Huntsville had the electric chair where hundreds of prisoners convicted of death were executed. Hmm. And between 1923 and 1973, 50 years, 506 people were executed. What? In Texas, yeah. Yeah, 506. We had 10 we had over 10. 101 years. That's 506 in 50 years. Oh, so. my gosh. Again, Texas is not where you want to be incarcerated. Yeah, it was it was tough time. And, you know, I don't have access to his Texas prison file, so I don't know a, a ton um, other than he's been about a year and a half there before he's released on November 2nd, 1967, to return to Minidoka County to be convicted for his original crimes. On the evening of November 19, 1967, while awaiting trial for 10 counts of forgery from 1965, from two Jeez. years earlier, he fell out of his bunk and broke his hand. What? Yeah. And so the jailer and the city police, they actually took him to the hospital for x-rays, and his arm was put in a splint. And they were, it was about 6 p.m., the authorities returned Dennis to the jail, quote, I opened the door and ran. I stole a pickup and went to Burley, Idaho. Oh, my god! So he escaped again. He actually hid in the shrubbery outside the courthouse and then snuck away as authorities were chasing after him. Besides the pickup, he broke into a house, stole a rifle, a shotgun, and some ammunition. And after a few days in Burley, Dennis dumped the truck off in Hayburn and stole another car. He left the shotgun in the truck before fleeing the state. He traveled to Utah, California, Nevada, Oregon, and then Washington. And he crossed back into Idaho and was arrested in Caldwell, December 4th, by FBI agents. He was riding with a man named Robert Egan, who owned the, actually owned the vehicle that they were riding in, mm. uh, believe it or not. Mm. And Robert was arrested for carrying a concealed weapon. Both men were armed with 38 caliber revolvers. Dennis was facing uh, charges of unlawful flight to avoid confinement, burglary, forgery, grand larceny, and escape. He was taken to the Caldwell Jail before being transferred back to Minidoka County Jail, where he pleaded guilty to escape and persistent violator. Jeez Louise. Finally, 
Under a heavy guard, he arrived back at the Idaho State Penitentiary on December 11, 1967, for the crime of escape and persistent violation of the law, and he was sentenced to life in prison. I feel like this is like Harry Houdini, who is like, he just keeps escaping when no one thinks he can. And so like he just has to walk around with like heavy guard. But then like at one point, there's just going to be like a flash of smoke and he's going to be gone. And everyone's going to be like, what happened? Like he is, this is insane. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Dennis Clark, number one, two, three, three, seven. Sentence not to exceed life. Plead guilty. Received December 11th, 67. He's 22 years old now. So he has a life sentence at 22. This is a life sentence because he's escaped 800 times. He forged 10 checks. Like, he can't stay out of trouble. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's it. He just couldn't help himself. It was just an inner compulsion. It's just, oh. Uh, Now he's growing up. He's 5 foot 7 inches tall and 130 pounds. So he's gained about 20 pounds and about 3 inches. Uh, medium complexion, still small build. Um, of Again, deformities noted. Neither of his little toes had nails, and the tip of his index finger on his left hand had been amputated. He drank. He smoked. He didn't gamble or do drugs. He did have tattoos and still listed his religion as Catholic. He said he was single. He had no children or previous marriages. And a- asking if he'd escaped or attempted to escape... Uh, all of the above mentions were listed. So that's kind of how I tracked out everything. Yeah. Now, in looking at the questionnaire his mother filled out, asking where most of the misconduct came from, she felt it was a bad and unstable home environment due to his father running off from the family after the fifth baby was born and thought he had a complex and insecurity in himself, both due to the trouble he had already been in and to his small physical size. And he would be described as kind of a flamboyant, like... He was just kind of the life of mm. the party. He would mm-hmm. walk in and, you know, that's Dennis. Everybody likes Dennis. Hmm. You know? And he just kind of... Charismatic. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Just small and compact and full of personality. <laughs> On December 30th, 1967, 19 days after arriving at the Idaho State Penitentiary, Dennis Clark escapes yet again. <laughs> <laughs> Should have said, say it with me, and I could have said escapes. Like, I... <laughs> How many days... 19. Jeez, right. come on, gang. <laughs> so at 11 p.m., officers held a count, and he was missing. They had messed up the count earlier in the day. Man. They suspected that, like his previous attempt with Robert Tisdale, he was just hiding out in Two Yard. The authorities decided not to sound the alarm until the next morning. Big mistake. Mm. So when they searched the grounds, he was nowhere to be found. And that is what they said that first time, though. Right, I know. It's like, man. So Dennis, he had scaled the ten foot fence with mm. barbed wire at the top that surrounded Two Yard and stole a car nearby in Boise. He drove it to Mountain Home, abandoned it, and stole another from Granger's Chevrolet. There, he drove that to Hammett, Idaho. He broke into the trailer of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Michaels and ransacked the place. They weren't home. At one fifteen a.m., the Michaels returned to their trailer and were met at gunpoint. <gasps> So Dennis ordered them to his car and ordered Charles to drive east. Charles drove, eyeing the gun. They stopped at one gas station, and Dennis held the gun at Mrs. Michaels while Charles went in and paid. And inside, Charles actually wrote a note and gave it to the station attendant that I'm being kidnapped right mm. now. He got back to the car when Dennis wasn't any wiser about it. And uh, they said, all right, we're going to keep going east. So 
They were around Dietrich, Idaho, when they stopped to check the map and to swap drivers because Dennis was like, we got to take back crowds. I got to find the back crowds. Where's the best back crowd? He mm-hmm. kept saying this to this this guy. And Charles was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you should drive and I'll look. And so while Dennis was actually looking down at the map, Charles grabbed the gun, yanked it from Dennis, turned it on him. And Dennis, eyes wide, he opens the car door. He runs out. He hops out. And he's running through the desert. And there, Dietrich and Charles unloaded that revolver in his direction. Never hit him. Charles and his wife, they turned the car around and made it back to the uh, local Shoshone County Sheriff and drove them where Dennis had fled. And the officers actually scoured the area and found Dennis about six miles outside of Dietrich on the main line railroad tracks and arrested him. He was returned to the out-of-state penitentiary facing yet more charges. He was locked in the hole for a few months. That's Uh, the only place that can hold him. Right, yeah. And even in, in the oral history, Dennis is like, you know, I've, I heard about people escaping from Five House, but nobody ever escaped from Siberia. Like, nobody. There's no way. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's mm-hmm. the best the, place like, for you, man. The escape artist <laughs> yeah. even said, I can't get out of here. Yeah. And a few days after this all occurred, Charles Michael actually wrote a letter to the Idaho Statesman editor stating, quote, It is hard to believe, though possible to understand, that a youth could be so persistently lawless as to earn himself a life sentence for habitual violation of the law by the age of 22. But it is almost impossible to believe that that man ever would have found even the faintest chance to escape prison after his first half-dozen escapes. Yet, this life-termer has a record of 17 escapes. It is hard enough in these times for the innocent citizenry of the land to enjoy safety from criminal activity. That problem hardly should have to be compounded by the seemingly easy escape of dangerous convicts. Almost every jail and prison has an occasional escape, but it's simply beyond excuse in the eyes of the public that a dangerous man of known capability for escapes should be able to run up an astonishing total of successes. End quote. And so he's Warden, not wrong. Right, he's not wrong. And Warden Orville Stiles at this time, he actually responded that, like, we have been amping up security at the penitentiary. We are learning from this mistake, and we are improving upon it. So Dennis was brought up for trial on this escape on August 22, 1968, and found guilty of second-degree kidnapping and persistent violator. He was sentenced for a second-life turn to run concurrently. So, Dennis was locked in maximum security to segregate him from the rest of the population for most of the year, and I couldn't find when he was released, but he quickly came up with a new plan to escape. He realized that there was a trap door in the ceiling of number one house, or what we call new cell house, 1890 cell house, and he could get to the roof from it. If he swung from the roof to that guard walkway on the back of the administration area, he would be blocked from the tower guard number one tower the one in the northwest corner that most visitors see as they drive mm-hmm. up to the mm-hmm. old pen okay i knew that once i hit the wall this guard could not shoot at me because of this shack here because this shack here i knew that once i hit the wall this guy couldn't shoot me. and the only guy that actually shoot at me would be this guy and uh, so i started thinking on this and then uh, one house they used to, well, in front of it, they used to have, uh, the captain's office was here. And there was stairwells that go up. And this, all this whole cell house had been gutted. They took all the cells out of it. And they showed movies in there. 
Okay, so I come in here and I, and, and I come into the captain's office because I worked in the, I worked for the captain in the captain's office, and I worked there and I worked at the hospital. I worked in the lieutenant's office. Okay, so I'd come into the captain's office and I'd come up the stairs and I'd cut through the bars. I could actually get into get into this area in here. Well, there was a ledge that that is about an inch wide on this side of the this side of the cell house and there was a couple of beams that come across here and here and there was a trap door up there so I come up here and I cut through the bars and I got on this ledge and I could test the ceiling test the ceiling and, and I could go, go down this uh, go down this ledge to get to this get to this cross beam where I could get up here where this trap door was so I got the bars cut and I'm coming across there and I made me a lawyer where I could lawyer that lock on the trap door. Okay, and I got on top of the building. And when I checked it out, I could see there was no place to actually hook a rope anywhere on the top of it. But I'd have to hook the rope on the trap door. So I went back down and I started, I made two hooks, grappling hook and another hook, hooked the trap door. Now I got the rope, I got the rope together and made a couple, like a, a couple pulleys. I actually swung down off the roof and swung down to the wall and, uh, I made a gun. And my plan was that, that I would come in there and I would hook. There was another guy with me. I needed another guy with me because one guy had to throw the hook to the wall and the other guy had to get that hook and where it comes to the trap door and pull the slack out of the rope and tie it and swing down and go across and uh, my plan was 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 I would go down first I had the gun and I would and I would come down to the wall and if this guy tried to shoot at somebody I'd shoot him and give my buddy time to get, get down off there he would only have to worry about the one guard mm-hmm. to his right mm-hmm. and so actually to deal with that guard, he actually made a gun using a stapler smuggled in from number two yard. They still ain't got all of that. I don't know if they still have that there or not. Yes, they do, and we want to know how you converted it. Okay. See, what, what they're missing is the barrel's gone. See, I know the barrel's gone. On the, on the staple gun itself, it's, you know how you pull it, you know, like, right. all right, it actually has a triggering device. Uh-huh. Well, what I've done is I've, I've built a block in there that could actually stand the shock of a bullet where it wouldn't blow up in my face. And I made another block that, 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 that fit in that, and then the barrel fit down in, into the block where you could actually take it and load, the, load the, the bullet into the barrel and you'd slide it into the block. And a spring hung onto it, and all you had to do was pull it. What <laughs> was the uh, block and barrel made? Do you remember? Just uh, it was just whole roll steel that, that I got from the uh, machine shop. I couldn't quite. Remember. It was whole roll steel that, uh, that I got from the machine shop. In fact, I had a buddy that was a he, uh, he was a die maker, machinist that, that helped me build that, and uh, and it worked. I was I was kind of apprehensive because I was so serious about escaping that was my thing I just I just liked to escape it that I would actually shot that guy in the tower I just I just know that I would have you know and, and I wanted to make sure because it was on me it was my job to protect the guy with me 
so I took it very seriously. So when I made the gun, that, that I wanted to make sure that if I if I shot down there, that I could get that guy off my body, you know. And, and I built it and fired it. So at this time, the cells had been removed from the 1890 cell house. It had been turned into kind of a rec room. And so he had to, like, climb up and just hanging from an edge, go to the middle of this room to get to this trap door. So he had a buddy to team up with him. And he got up to the top, and his buddy chickened out. He's like, no way, I'm not doing this. And so Dennis went by himself. He got to the trap door, and he fell. So when I, when I knew I was going to fall, I just kind of dipped myself down. Because I figured if I was going at any kind of an angle, I wouldn't hit as hard and it saved my life. Because when I felt, when I actually felt myself slipping, that I just come down, I just walked. I just took off. <laughs> and, and I threw myself out far enough where I landed on a bench. I fell all the way through the bench and then I hit my head. I gave the whole side of my head in. But then I jumped up. So I hit, I jumped up. And I got to crawl all the way back up out of there. I got to back up to the top because we're, I'm locked in in the building. And I'm talking about I'm just covered with blood. But I come back and I crawl all the way back up to the top. I fell, I fell again because I was so bloody. I'm talking about them head wounds. I, was, I got a scar right on horseshoe-shaped side of my head. And, uh, and I was going up the bars and I slipped and I fell and fell bunch of benches and things and I finally got up and I got back up out of there and I started going down the stairs and one of my point men come in after me and they helped me get out of the building and uh, every time I took a step I let puddle of blood was, my head was really messed up first they thought that somebody had assaulted me in fact they, that they brought a doctor out there and he was one to take me to town and they was refusing to let me go to town and uh, they had uh, Virgil Carey was the warden then. And all, he was almost an enemy of mine. And, and uh, he wouldn't let me go. They wouldn't let me take me to hospital. And they chained me up back in the ward after the doctor got some semblance together. And they come back here and ask me how many were they. They thought I'd been assaulted. I told them I didn't want to talk about it because that was fine. But I wanted to believe that somebody had assaulted me. I didn't want to get off over to one house and find that stuff. And uh, but they went looking. and they found you know, they found all the blood and the gore, you know. And uh, and they finally carries the one version carry he was the Lord. He was the one that snapped, he told Tucker, Lieutenant Tucker, to get a ladder and go up there and check. And then they went up there and they found the ropes, the bugs, the zip So due to the constant danger of having Dennis Clark Idaho authorities reached out to the federal prison system to find a better fit for him. So Dennis was actually transferred to the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, on December 5th, 1969, given the number 85983. And he remained there for nearly three years. He stayed out of trouble. That was the right place for him. He got his GED. He earned good work reports. On May 11, 1971, he actually wrote a letter to the Director of Corrections, now Raymond May, here at the Hmm. Idaho State Penitentiary. He said, Dear Sir, I have been in the federal system two years this coming July. My contract is coming up for renewal in June, and I would appreciate it very much if a transfer back to state custody would be made at this time. In the past 22 months, my attitude and outlook on life has taken a new meaning to me. Since I have been here, you can check my record. I have kept an almost perfect record. 
I am now working in the factory here, but even though I like the job, this isn't what I want. I realize that I must spend quite a few years of my life in prison. So enable to help myself and prove to others that I want to better myself and someday get released, I would like to come back to Idaho to take advantage of the school there and also take up some of the vocational training. I would very much like to finish my education, but as it stands now, I haven't started any program here because of the uncertainty of my status. I don't know if I'm here to remain here or to come back to Idaho. Mr. May, I believe that I've come to a time in my life and awakened to the fact that prison isn't the life that I want to lead. I know that in the past I have acted very immature and irresponsible, but I believe now that I am mature enough to accept responsibility. I would appreciate it if you would give me the chance to show you and the parole board that I am ready to settle down and earn my right to freedom again. He ended with a, uh, a letter of condolence, and Director May responded, Dear Mr. Clark, I reviewed the contents of your letter with my staff. We want to commend you for the program indicated in your letter and hope you will continue in this direction. As you know, Idaho presently has a new correctional institution under construction. Hopefully, it will be ready for occupancy by early 1973. It is our plan to return all Idaho's inmates presently housed in federal institutions to the state at this time. We have recently implemented a certified high school program along with some college courses. I'd encourage you to start working towards your education goals while at Leavenworth. In all probability, any work done there could be transferred for credit to us at this time you return back to Idaho. And so he decides, all right, I'm going to go to school here. And on June 1st, 1972, Dennis wrote it to Director May. This time he explained that he had enrolled in the GED program and within a few months took his final tests and passed them with above average results. Quote, Hmm. I find myself continually fascinated by the wealth of knowledge available after discovering that I have a strong desire to further my education. End quote. That is what I was thinking, is that he clearly, if he's making a gun out of a stapler right. and he's making this like elaborate pulley system and he's figured out all of these fancy ways yeah. to like get into places undetected, he's clearly incredibly smart. And like Absolutely. if he could use, I mean, we say this all the time, like if you could take these smarts and put them to use in like something useful, like you could make so much money, mm-hmm. you could have a secure job for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And so it's just too bad that he for so long used it for something thing that wasn't productive yeah absolutely he actually asked because leavenworth they were offering college courses and things but because he was a state prisoner he couldn't take these and so he Mm. asked raymond may hey you know i'd love to harness what mental powers i have and channel them towards my ultimate goal of becoming a useful citizen it may sound presumptuous on my part to state that i have learned in the recent past that no agency can rehabilitate a man it can only be done by the man himself. Mm. Please give me a chance to do so. Because he's asking, will you will you guys pay for my college courses mm-hmm. out here? Mm-hmm. And Director May responded that Iowa couldn't afford that. But when he returned to Idaho, he could enroll and take the basic college courses that were available to all prisoners here. And Dennis was returned to Idaho on December 8th, 1972. So about almost a, a year before they would be transferred to the new site. He was given a job in the kitchen, and uh, he requested a move from the kitchen to the laundry headquarters, and by June of 73, his custody was moved from close to minimum as authorities saw his participation Hmm. in self-help programs, and uh, he just had an overall improvement in his attitude. Now, seeing the drastic improvement in his attitude, the Idaho Commission for Pardons and Parole commuted his sentence to 18 years. 
And it seemed that he was improving himself, turning things around as he joined different self-help programs in the institution. He fell off the wagon on August 25th, 1973, Mm. when he was working a minimum custody job and caught his hands on some whiskey. Now, he promptly walked off the job and was arrested a month later, September 26th, 1973. He was transferred to Unit 7, the maximum security cell block that was completed at the new site. And in December of 1973, as the old institution was closing down, authorities wanted him to stay positive, see the trouble in his ways, and gave him a job of general maintenance in maximum security to keep him going. Now, in January of 74, he was charged with escape and handed three more years to run concurrently with his sentence. And that was for walking off. Regardless, they gave him a new position working in Pendine Hall in the uh, the kitchen at the new institution to provide him, quote, more meaningful and productive work, end quote. They were like, you know, he's he worked so hard. He was mm-hmm, doing so well. Mm-hmm. He fell off the wagon. He messed himself up. But mm-hmm. if we can keep his attitude up, we can maybe correct him. We mm-hmm, can help him rehabilitate. Mm-hmm. They noted that the job would provide good security as he would be relegated to work only during daylight hours. And they noted he was actually going before the parole board in February of 74, he then was given the privilege of taking night classes, furthering his development. And when he met with the board, authorities handed him another bone. They granted him a parole for March 3rd, 1975. And throughout 1974 and early 1975, his custody level dropped and he was moved to the farm dorm and given work release uh, to work with a construction crew on the outside. Dennis was married to Darlene Davis on March 22, 1975 in Asotin, Washington, and they would have one child together. He was released, but by September, he had committed yet another burglary in Weezer with his Dang old it. pal Robert Tisdale Dang it. and was uh, sentenced yet again to up to 15 years. I know the Department of Corrections. You know. During the robbery, Dennis was actually shot in the leg, too. Oh. Uh, the oral history you've been hearing was from April 1st, 1982, while he was incarcerated in Idaho for this mm-hmm. this latest robbery. And I believe he was released in February of 1984. We obviously have limited access to the files mm-hmm. uh, after the, he left the old Iowa State Penitentiary, mm-hmm. so I don't have mm-hmm. much information. But as we've seen thus far, Dennis was a career criminal. His file specifically states that he had never had a real job outside of the prison. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit of that farm work before Mm -hmm. St. Anthony. Mm -hmm. In early September 1985, Dennis and a man named Jesse Kuntz broke into an IGA grocery store in Hamilton, Montana. They cracked the safe and stole around $900 in cash, meat, hardware, including two VCRs and six movies, and other food. The next day, sheriffs searched his house in Rupert, Idaho, and found about $2,500 in cash and merchandise stolen from that and other stores. Dennis was arrested, but must have gotten out on bail because he skipped town. Hmm. Two years later, 1987, Dennis was finally arrested in Alberton, about half an hour west of Missoula in Montana, by federal, state, and local law enforcement officers. He's arraigned by federal authorities on a charge of interstate flight to avoid prosecution on burglary charges and wanted in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, Nebraska, and Colorado for several burglaries. He was brought up for the grocery store burglary and given 10 years in the Montana State Prison at Deer Lodge. Deer Lodge. Yeah. Uh, Rivoli County Sheriff's Detective Jim Bailey said of Dennis, quote, He's not run-of-the-mill. 
This is quite an artistic burglar who's put cops through hell everywhere. He does the job. Jeez. End quote. So he spent some time in Deer Lodge. Uh, I don't know when he was released on this charge. The next file I came across was when actually Dennis filed for a divorce from Darlene hmm. due to marital discord. What and would have been causing that marital discord, I'm do you not, suppose? I'm not sure. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. It seems like they would have had a very happy normal marriage. Right. <laughs> and they were divorced September 28, 1988. And at some point, you know, he married another woman named Janet, and I couldn't find any marriage records of that. So we actually have another oral history, and I think this is towards the end of his Deer Lodge. It was in 1992, and it's a phone interview with him. And mm. Chris Brady, who used to be the director here at the Old Idaho Penitentiary, she was interviewing him about tattoos. And he mm. had become quite the tattoo artist. His body was full of tattoos at this point. Mm-hmm. And he had tatted up several other prisoners that had been incarcerated hmm. here. And so everybody said, oh, yeah, if you want a good rose, get one from Dennis. Dennis knows how, hmm. to, how to tack up some roses. So Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. In August 1993, I found an article in which Dennis was facing arrest charges in Kansas. He was still listed as an inmate in the Montana State Penitentiary. So... It appears he was released sometime before 1996 because he was arrested once more. Dennis was living in Greensville, California, and according to the Lassen County Times in Susanville, California, Dennis was, quote, known by federal investigators as the purported ringleader of West Coast white supremacist criminal gang. Oh, boy. End quote. He was 51 years old, arrested on December 18, 1996, near Hood River in Oregon for a series of charges. These from California authorities, conspiring to hold up a Quincy jewelry store, failure to show up for court on a gun and drug charges because it stemmed from him being a felon in possession of a firearm, and possible involvement in 15 unsolved burglaries. These were from the federal authorities, 17 post office burglaries in four states, including Southern Oregon, Northern California, Nevada, and Idaho. And during this arrest, authorities also detained four adults, including his wife, Janet, four children, and four dogs from his home. And I didn't find any other information Hmm. from this, but discovered an article in the Times News in Twin Falls on June 8th, 1999, titled, Reputed Racist Sentence for Drug Gun Charges. (laughs) And this revealed that Dennis was serving a federal prison term in Oregon. He was sentenced to over 24 years in the federal prison for a weapons and drugs scheme. He's purportedly planning to trade guns for narcotics in California as part of his white supremacist gang affiliation. Jeez. U.S. Attorney Betty Richardson said of Dennis, quote, Sometimes the only thing to do with habitual predators like this is lock them away for a long time. Society will be safer with Mr. Clark behind bars until he's well into his 70s. That was the last thing I could find on Dennis. Do you know the website mugshots.com? Mm-hmm. Uh, before that was kind of shut down and everything. Uh, I actually found his mugshots from these different mm-hmm. institutions, and they actually documented all of his tattoos, and he had, they were everywhere. It's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, the next thing I found was that Dennis Guy Clark died on February 7th, 2015 in memphis tennessee hmm. i don't even know i i that's don't that's insane right. like well and it's too bad that like you know he was surely a career criminal but then it seems like he really got in deep there at the very end yeah that like all of a sudden it's about narcotics and like weapon smuggling mm-hmm. and he is involved in you know 
bad gang and like oh that's really too bad wow what a way to open the new season oh my gosh the skateboard oh man if you come through come check out five house see his spoon see See his his young mugshot yeah now you know his story like I Man. honestly, I thought that was gonna be it. I thought that was gonna be the highlight, and then, you know, uh, seventy pages of research, <laughs> and like three hours of oral history later, I, I'm a little crazy. Yeah. I feel like I. <laughs> so I hope everyone enjoyed that because it's so it's interesting. A lot. <laughs> so interesting. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. They actually had a convict language that, that we'd speak, where the guards didn't know what we was talking about. We'd holler back and forth from Sudbury to the hole. Or if we wanted to holler at somebody on the yard, they would sneak around there and get within uh, hearing distance. And you could talk to them. And they used the language called Agonite. How does it spell? Agonite. And it, it's, it's kind of like um, hanging a bag of our jacket boot. I ask you, how are you? And, and, and you learn those. You don't actually communicate. And, uh, and very little communication with the officers. There was that separation. There was an enmity there all the time. Wow. Wow. All right, Sky. You have something fun to share with us today, too. I mean, I I think it's kind of fun. I she's think so. yeah, she's this is one a, of my favorites. She's yeah. a really interesting lady. So <laughs> today I am talking about number two four zero four Mamie Ross. My sources are her inmate file, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, newspaper.com articles, ancestry.com records, Albion Valley Historical Society at albionidahohistory.org, albionidaho.org, and just, again, sort of general stats from Wikipedia. So, Mamie Ross was born Mamie Melissa Cohn on October 16, 1876 in Albion, Idaho Territory. Her parents were Henry Cohn and Elva Johnson Cohn, and as far as I could tell, she is one of 12 kids. Jeez. Yes. So the 1900 census states that Elva was a mother to 12 kids, but only 11 were living. I'm not really sure which one had died by 1900. The answer, of course, lies in the 1890 census, which was burned, and therefore we don't have have record of so here are the the kids and siblings as far as i could tell so she was actually the seventh child so she had older brother john josephine almira luther henry who also went by auto laura then mamie then younger siblings irene samuel hardy chancy and william wow so it was a big old family i wouldn't even remember any of their names it would be like if you were a parent, you'd just like have to go through the whole list of names and be like, I don't know who I'm looking for. All of you just get out of here. My mom talks about that. Oh, my gosh. She had six siblings. All of their names oh. started with an S. And so my grandpa would like go through the whole, oh, like wow. all of them and just be like, I don't know who I want. Just all of you get out of here. 
<laughs> yeah, like a home alone situation yeah. you get left behind <laughs> right totally <laughs> so mamie was raised in the mormon church and attended sunday school through the church according to her intake form she said she only attended secular school for a short time but she could read and write and at some point the family actually moved down to arizona territory and on august 1st 1890 her father henry died in phoenix of an unknown reason and she herself would have been 13 almost 14 when he died then at 16, Mamie left the family home. I am not completely sure why, but my best guess would be marriage, because at some point in the 1890s, she married a man named Orville Duncan, and around 1895, they had a, a son, Orville Duncan Jr., which Orville Duncan, and maybe it's just because of, like, Orville Redenbacher, but yeah. I, I feel like it's, like, a product name a of some name. kind. Like, yeah. it's just, like, classic. I think if I found the correct Orville Duncan Sr. on Ancestry, he died in 1900, but I couldn't find the cause. There is a brief article in the Blackfoot News newspaper from December 15th, 1900, that stated that he had an accident insurance policy that was paid out to his mother, indicating that it was some kind of accident that killed him, mm -hmm. but I couldn't find any sort of definitive proof. Yeah. And he is buried in Grove City Cemetery in Blackfoot. Now, of course, there is a possibility that this Orville Duncan is not him, but things do seem to sort of match up pretty well in terms of like location and mm -hmm. age and things like that. Now, interestingly, later Orville Jr. would say that he didn't know anything about his biological father, like not even that he had died. And so if that's the case, it is possible that it wasn't a death because I would imagine if it was like an accident, then Mamie would have said like your father died. And I don't know right. if it was one of those like he actually ran off and like we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I have a situation like that in my family. So I don't like that. My best guess is that he died. Don't really know. Mm -hmm. So March 28th, 1904, Mamie marries Daniel Francis Ross in Fremont, Idaho, and the two of them settled in Albion. Now, weirdly, the marriage records that I found actually list her as Marnie Rogan. This could be just like bad handwriting, but yeah, I don't know why, because it's not like she was still married mm -hmm. um, to, to Orville or anything. So... It may just be bad handwriting. She may have just huh. said, like, that's my name. I don't know. Daniel Ross, the husband, was born in Payson, Utah in 1868, and he had married a woman named Fanny or Frances Emmeline Dolson in 1890, and they had had two sons together, James and Leo, and then he also had a stepson from Fanny's second marriage, William Dolson. So this is her third marriage oh, to geez. to uh, Daniel. And then, of course, this is Daniel's first. Fanny died on May 5th, 1902 or 1903. Some sources say 1902. Her headstone says 1903. So this is the, the joy of these early years right. of newspapers. <laughs> and so, of course, when Mamie and Daniel married, they already had three kids, one of hers and two of his. So by 1910, they have three kids of their own, one boy and two girls, Joseph, who was born in 1906, Mamie, who was born in 1908, and Dora Blanche, who was born in 1910. And then four years later, they were joined by another daughter, Elva Susan. There may have also been another daughter, Frances, who was born around 1909-1910. Now, she's listed in the 1910 census, but not in the 1920 census. Her days mostly actually match up with Dora Blanche's stats so it's possible that they're the same person she just went by a different name yeah. that happens every once in a while it's very annoying but every once in a while that <laughs> happens and then january 21st 1916 mamie gives birth to another daughter marjorie helen so to recap by 1916 daniel and mamie ross had been married for six years and now had eight kids total 
and they'd been married for six years and they had five kids in six years like they're just cranking them out like (laughs) so daniel's son daniel's sons from his first marriage james and leo were 25 and 21 and then mamie's son orville was also 21 and then their five kids of their own were 10 8 6 2 and a newborn all along the spectrum so daniel and his two grown sons worked as general laborers and daniel currently worked in the lumber industry again they're all living in albion but given such a big family and their jobs as general laborers they're probably not super financially well off so on the night of february 12th 1916 police raid the ross home in albion er, pause I always love to do this. So, Albion history. Super interesting. <laughs> this is from albionidahohistory.org. This is a quote from one old timer. He said, quote, Albion was the center of the universe. There was no Burley, no Rupert, and no Twin Falls. Just wasteland beyond Albion. End quote. So, Albion is in Casha County, which borders Utah in south-central Idaho. Trappers first entered the Albion Valley, then called Marsh Valley, in 1864, and the town was actually originally called Marsh Basin. The Albion Mountains soon became mining sites for prospectors in search of gold and silver, and then the area also was used for cattle summer range and ranching as early as 1868. People began settling in Marsh Basin around 1871 or 1872, and it soon became a junction, like a stopping area for travelers from Utah through to California. And then in the early 1870s, a man named Andrew Burstrom got his wagon stuck in the mud east of town. And when he couldn't get it unstuck, he decided to just start selling things out of it. Um, So he opened technically the first sort of general store in Marsh Basin, and he sold things like whiskey, flour, tobacco, and calico. And then by 1876, he opened a legitimate log cabin general store within town limits. And so after this, the town begins to expand in the late 1870s, including a school. Originally, Marsh Basin was located in Owyhee County, but the county seat was Silver City, 250 miles away. It's a big, massive county. And so residents wanted to send representatives to try to create a new county, but they were unable to do so for several years. Then by 1878, the area became a kind of winter resort for frequent travelers on the freight road from Kelton, Utah to Boise. And farmers and ranchers in the area did really well. They sold supplies to travelers. And then, of course, the area is is well known for agriculture. Then in 1879, the territorial legislature organized Casha County, declaring Marsh Basin as the county seat. And so around the same time, residents decided to change the name of Marsh Basin to Albion, which is a Latin term meaning mountain, high land, and white. And uh, Albion is also another name for Great Britain, used most often in poems, and was also briefly considered as a name for Canada, which I didn't know. It's probably pronounced Albion or something British, I don't know. (laughs) Um, And a British surveyor, Sir Francis Drake, originally called the area of California New Albion when he landed there in 1579. So it was very common, I think, in England, but just didn't ever really make its way over here. Then in 1880, the original town site was purchased by a firm called Bascom and Robinson, which sounds like Bascom Robinson. Robinson. (laughs) (laughs) 
And from there, they plotted a new area for city lots, and the town just really starts to grow. So five years later, 1885, Albion has four saloons, a brewery, a livery stable, three hotels, and a skating rink, as well as a printing press, which they used to start the Casha County Times, the local newspaper. Sounds like a great place. I know. It kind of sounds fun. The Methodist Church was established there in 1878. The first LDS branch was organized there in 1883, and Albion actually would become a small LDS hub as the Ross family were sort of a testament to. Mm -hmm. Then in 1893, the Albion Normal School was established, built with $3,000 and hours and hours of voluntary man hours from the residents. And as I got wrong several seasons ago, normal schools were schools to use to train teachers. So that's what that was that was so for. And I would actually teach hundreds of Idaho teachers before it closed in 1951. And teaching programs were transferred to what is now Idaho State University. Mm -hmm. So kind of a big deal. And then Albion has remained a small farming community since the turn of the 20th century. In the 2010 census, their population was 267 total. And in 2019, the estimate was 276. So they they grew by nine. (laughs) So when the Ross family were in Albion, the population was actually higher. It was about 390. That's how I would start a town. You'd be like, well, my cart's... (laughs) stuck so yeah <laughs> here we go well i have some things i can sell you guys want something <laughs> wow it was probably like and it probably gained like notoriety of like yeah there's this dude that like he just, just... sells stuff out of his wagon <laughs> and so people are like oh i want to go see that i want to go buy something from right. him and <laughs> what a character i know he sounds cool <laughs> so so anyway back to mamie so on the evening of february 12th 1916 police raid the ross home there they find quote a quantity of stolen goods end quote including bolts of stolen cloth stuck between the mattress and the springs and altogether five people were arrested leo and orville for burglary and daniel jd um who was uh james and mamie were arrested on receiving stolen property and so newspapers reported that leo and orville had robbed a general store judd and anderson in marshfield which is now declo on the night of january 12th just nine days before marjorie was born it took an entire month for police to basically trace them but you know marjorie again she's newborn the newspapers also inaccurately stated that her husband was JD, but JD was her stepson. Yeah. And then it also inaccurately stated that Leo was her son and Duncan was her stepson. Oh. The Orville, I should say, was her stepson. So authorities believe that Mamie was, quote, the brains of the crowd and the instigator of the whole affair, end quote. But there wasn't any evidence I could ever find to corroborate that, even when, like, the lawyers and the the sheriff, they all they said was like, she was the brains of the operation. I just know it. But they're just like, there is no evidence to prove that was the case. And Sheriff W.O. Pratt of Casha County stated, quote, Mrs. Ross knew what was going on. She did her utmost to throw us off the scent when we were hunting for stolen goods. Even the bed on which her two youngest children lay contained a quantity of stolen goods, end quote. And it was mostly cloth? Yeah, it's like cloth. And then they said just a quantity of stolen goods. It, like, oh, I think, man. yeah. And um, I think even if she came in, like, she didn't, I don't think, and we can get into this, but I don't think that she knew they were going to steal. But by the time they brought it back, she was like, I mean, I could sure use some cloth because yeah. I have eight kids I need to take care of. You that, know, That's like, my only thought. Yeah. Like, and so she yeah. may have known that, yes, there were stolen goods in her home, but I don't, it doesn't seem to me as if she was like, go mm-hmm. steal a bunch of stuff. But maybe, yeah. you know, maybe I'm just thinking too highly of her. 
So on February 15th, Judge William A. Babcock of Twin Falls sentenced all five Ross family members to sentences at the Idaho State Penitentiary as they all had pled guilty. And according to a Daily Statesman article published several days after she had entered prison, Mamie declined the judge's offer of counsel, saying that her attorney in Albion stated if she pleaded guilty, she would get a minimum sentence. Quote, you may have been misled, Judge Babcock told her. I still insist on your having an attorney. There may be extenuating circumstances in this case, and I want them brought out if they exist. End quote. But still, Mamie insisted on her guilt and was thus sentenced. And that's the thing. And people really get into the judge's face of like, you you did this to this like mother with this newborn Mm -hmm. baby. That was so unfair of you. And he had to be like, I like I gave her every chance to like fight this. Like he really had to stand up for himself uh, after this. So according to a Daily Statesman article on February 23rd, 1916, quote, the baby, Margaret Helen, which of course we know is Marjorie Helen, which weighed but two pounds at birth, was Mm. only two weeks old, and the mother had only been out of bed two days, so she stated, when she was called into court, a timid, frightened, sick woman who pleaded guilty to having received the goods simply because her sons gave them to her, end quote. And so the family, with the exception of her five other children, boarded the train to Boise. And of course, Mamie had her two-week-old baby with her, which is, this is, this is where sympathy really comes in, not just with us, but with the people of Boise and around the state. Mm -hmm. So while on the train, a newspaper reporter asked Mamie, quote, didn't your lawyer advise you what to do? End quote. Mamie replied, quote, we didn't have a lawyer. We had never been in any trouble before. And when the officers asked me if I had received the articles, I said I had for my son and my stepson brought them to the house and gave them to me. My husband was not even home at the time it happened, yet we both have had to pay the penalty for what the boys did. It has been a terrible lesson to them, not only to suffer for what they did, but to see us suffer also when they know we were innocent, end quote. Mm. When they arrived in Boise, again, all of the children except for the baby were actually placed in the children's home. And she showed up to the penitentiary on February 17th, 1916 with the baby in her arms. And she had been sentenced to a period of not less than six months and not more than five years. And of course, she couldn't keep this baby. So here's her intake form. Number 2404, Mamie Ross from Casha County. Sentenced six months to five years, age when received 39, born in Albion, Idaho, legitimate occupation housewife. She's five, three and one eighths inches, medium complexion, weight 112, color of hair brown, color of eyes gray brown, married with eight children, father not living, died when the prisoner was 12, mother no longer living, died when she was 33. She left home when she was 16 years old, had religious instruction, attended Sunday school, was a member of the Mormon church, can read and write, attended school short time years, (laughs) habits of life abstinent, former imprisonment none, name and address of nearest relative, Daniel F. Ross, Peculiarity in build and feature, regular, condition of teeth, poor, mm-hmm. size of boot worn, five. Let's see her. So her father was actually born in England. Um, her mother was born in the United States, and she had lived in Idaho for 14 years. So the day after her arrival on February 18th, Warden Snook accompanied Mamie to the children's home where, quote, a sobbing little woman parted with her two months old, and of course, two weeks old babe, 
leaving the infant in the dainty bassinet in the nursery of the children's home, end oh. quote. And Ward Snook said that? or No, so that that's what the newspaper was written. Oh, okay. But then Ward and Snook did actually say uh, in an article from the next day, quote, had we any kind of quarters for women at the penitentiary, I should have permitted the mother to have her babe, but we have just one room, and in this room are five women. Two of them are diseased, and I do not think it will for the child to be left in this environment. In fact, it would not have been fair to either the baby or the other prisoners. So while it nearly broke the mother's heart to part from her infant, it seemed the only thing to do. Mm. We know the child will have the best of care at the home, probably much better than the mother could give it, end quote. And actually, part of the reason that Snook made this last comment is due to the supposed poor conditions of the Ross home back mm -hmm. in Albion. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a Daily Statesman article from March 7th, 1916, quote, Mrs. Ross has no home. The shack they were living in was a rental lean-to, about 8 by 14 feet, in which 10 of the Ross family were living. Most of them were known to be suffering from a loathsome disease. The penitentiary is much preferable to this squalid home. Mrs. Ross would have a better life there. In fact, she said she would prefer to go there if the children were cared for, end quote. Also, there were only four other women in the state penitentiary in the women's ward when Mamie entered, as far as we know. That was Mrs. G.E. Brown, who was in for accessory to murder, Hattie Kolb, who was in for adultery, Dolly Underwood, who was in for robbery, who I will cover later this season, mm -hmm. and Maggie Acox, who was in for voluntary manslaughter. And I'm not really sure which ones were diseased, as Warden Snook said, but apparently two of them were. Oh boy. So Mamie's story, understandably, is quite a sensation when the newspapers mm -hmm. published this story. And three days after her arrival, an article appeared in the Idaho Daily Statesman titled, Hear Story of Mrs. Ross. Quote, one mother's heart was made glad and hopeful Saturday, that of Mrs. Mamie Ross, the woman who was separated from her month-old babe Friday. Saturday, the Board of Pardons convened for just one purpose. The purpose was humanitarian. Mrs. Ross was brought before the board, and she told her story. She did not know where the goods came from, from which she received. At least that's what she told the board. She did not even ask. She only knew the goods were brought to her by her husband, son, and stepson. When she was arrested and tried, she told the truth and admitted that she received the goods, but it was not for greed, for gain, or spoil. She supposed the goods were acquired legally, end quote. Now, there was one very important person in Idaho who did indeed hear the story of Mrs. Ross, and that was the governor, one of my favorite governors, Moses Alexander. Oh, Moses. He actually released a statement in regards to issuing a reprieve. Quote, This woman, like many other mothers, sacrificed herself for her family, and through an act of her boys and her husband, pled guilty to receiving stolen goods, and was compelled to give up her infant to the care of the children's home yesterday. Justice may have been dealt and the law vindicated, but from the viewpoint of humanity and my idea thereof, this mother of an infant less than a month has no business in the penitentiary. The appearance of this mother shows lack of worldly comforts, but her grief at the separation from her infant and other children, who were in the care of relatives in Albion, is as heartrending as though she were dressed in satin and diamonds. There have been much more flagrant violations of law against the peace and dignity of the state gone unpunished in this and other states than what this woman is accused of. As soon as arrangements can be made, she will be restored to her children, and whatever criticism comes from this act, I am glad to shoulder the entire responsibility." End quote. So on February 22nd, the prison administrator received a memo from the State of Idaho Executive Department signed by Governor Alexander himself. So this is the entire uh, memo, if you don't mind me reading it. No. Quote, whereas the said Mrs. Mamie Ross is the mother of an infant child from the proper care and custody of which she is deprived by reason of her confinement within such prison, now, therefore, I, Moses Alexander, 
governor of the state of Idaho, believing that the ends of justice will thereby be subserved and the commands of human sympathy require that the said Mamie Ross should be free to nurture and rear the said infant child, I, by virtue of the power and authority vested in me by the Constitution and laws of the state of Idaho, do hereby grant a respite to and do reprieve the said Mamie Ross until the first Wednesday of April 1916, in order that she, the said Mamie Ross, may make due and regular application to the Board of Pardons of the state of Idaho for a pardon from said judgment of imprisonment, end quote. Mamie Ross was released from prison on that very day, February 22nd, 1916. She served four days of a six-month to five-year sentence. (laughs) And she is the female inmate, if not the inmate, who served the shortest sentence in the history of this prison. When asked, what do you expect to do when you get back? She replied, the first thing I hope to do is to get my children under my own roof again. Our things are still in the house we rented. What I shall do after that, I do not know. So Mamie actually remained at the warden's residence until 6 p.m. that night when Warden Snook himself accompanied her to the children's home to get her baby back. And then Warden Snook took her to the Oregon Short Line Depot where she took the train at 7 p.m. to Albion. And so because of this article about Mamie, the public, along with Governor Alexander, they were just outraged that they would have done this to this mother and again especially towards judge babcock they basically accused him of dealing too harshly with her Mm -hmm. on february 26 a daily statesman article came out defending babcock's actions publishing a portion of a letter that babcock wrote to the secretary of state board of pardons and he said quote I am just in receipt of a letter from you in relation to Mrs. Mamie M. Ross, and in connection therewith will say that I was very reluctant to oppose this sentence on account of the age of Mrs. Ross's baby, but from the information imparted to me by Sheriff Pratt of Cache County and C.A. Johnson, prosecuting attorney of that county, that Mrs. Ross was the prime mover and instigator in the burglary committed by her sons, who entered a plea of guilty in court, I did not feel that under the law I could do otherwise. End quote. And um, so, again, the article recounts how Judge Babcock insisted that she have an attorney and she persisted in pleading guilty. And then a Twin Falls attorney, W.P. Guthrie, said, quote, Judge Babcock has been placed in a false light in the case of Mrs. Mamie Ross. There is no kinder hearted man in the state than the judge, and he did everything in his power to protect the woman. Judge Babcock is the father of five children, and as a family man, he sets a splendid example. He is the personification of kindness and fairness, and we all think as much of him as a man as we respect him as a judge and i could not pay him a higher compliment he has been treated unfairly in this manner and we resent the reflection upon his judgment it is undeserved end quote and then actually sheriff w.o pratt of Casha county also defended judge babcock saying quote if they could see that filthy home if they knew how that family had been living they would not be so hasty in criticizing the court and the officers of Casha county who have handled the ross case in a spirit of human kindness and justice if they want to do something good let them find a better home for those unfortunate children end oh quote my so yeah he's kind of like shots fired like come at me um and then warden snook also took some heat for the ross case especially from governor alexander who apparently launched a verbal attack on him and this is part of it Uh, so this is actually warden's sort of response and so he says quote the attack made upon me by governor alexander was based on the case of mrs ross the governor wanted to make a grandstand play and saw in the case of this woman an opportunity he had the stage all set but as i received the reprieve before it was intended i should the governor being out of town my action in immediately releasing a woman upset the settings hence the governor's attack against me end quote so he basically is saying that like 
Governor Alexander was doing this to sort of like make himself look so much better and he had it all set up where it was going to be this like whole grand thing and the reprieve got sent to him basically too early and so Ward and Snook released him the day that he got it but he like wasn't supposed to and so that's why Governor Alexander like attacked him basically (sighs) but Despite all of this finger pointing and blaming, Mamie was released, and in April she was granted a further reprieve until the next meeting of the board when they expected her to receive a full pardon. And she was given an official pardon on December 21st, 1916. So, as for the rest of her family, her husband Daniel and stepson JD were both put on parole in September 1916. Her stepson Leo was put on parole on March 8th, 1917, and actually her son was in for the longest. He was pardoned on August 6th, 1917. So, none of them served more than a year and a half for this. Now, probably because the conditions of the paroles were that they remain in Ada County, the Ross family moved to Boise by 1920, where they lived on a farm. Sadly, Daniel died in 1924 at St. Luke's Hospital in Boise, just down the road from the pen. And you know how people say that, like, doctor's handwriting is illegible? Like, that's the big joke? So that's actually the case in Daniel's death record. I could not make out a thing. So hard. Not a thing. Yeah. Um, I think it maybe says operated. So he might have died on the operating table to clear up maybe a chronic illness he had. Mm-hmm. I could make out the word chronic, but not the actual disease that was chronic. So he died yeah. at the hospital under treatment of doctors Jeez. regardless, but could not tell what it was. So um, in 1930, Mamie is still living in Boise with her son Joseph and her daughter Marjorie. And her daughter Marjorie is only going to be 14 at this point. Mm-hmm which feels like so much time would have passed between 16 and 1930. But um, Mamie worked as a housekeeper. And then in 1940, she's actually living with her daughter, Dora, and her son-in-law, William Tinsley, along with three grandchildren in Boise. And she actually remained in Boise for the rest of her life. She died in a Boise hospital on October 31st, 1954, of gastric carcinoma, which is the medical name for stomach cancer. Oh, my gosh. So she was 78 years old when she died. She was survived by two sons, Joseph Ross, and Orville Duncan, and then four daughters, Marjorie Ross, Mamie Boring, Dora Tinsley, and Elva Bodges, 14 grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. And she's actually buried in Morris Hill Cemetery next to Daniel. And so that is the mostly uplifting story of Mamie Ross. Yeah. Snook has a heart sometimes. It's so nice to hear, too. So that's... It balances out, I feel like. Yeah. Dennis's story was just like escape. Oh, yeah, someone burglary. who has no parental figure, mm-hmm. and then maybe who's like, oh, like the citizenry's like, no, let this mother stay yeah. with her kids, like the ones that aren't trouble, and Absolutely. like take care of them, so they don't do the same thing. Right. Like, oh. Well, and it especially that it was very vivid imagery of this just tiny baby, mm-hmm. and this poor mother who is having to give. I mean. It breaks to think about how little two weeks old is. It's just heartbreaking to think of, you know, a mother being separated from a baby that young is just, you know, and especially in the early um, 20th century when marriage and motherhood was like really on a pedestal of like Mm. that is sort of the ultimate what women are supposed to be doing and like family values Mm. is, you know, really important and always has been important, I think, in this uh, in this country. And so just all of that sort of worked in her favor. And to me, it does seem as if 
again, the only uh, like reports that we have that this was sort of schemed up by her are from the Kasha County, you know, authorities. Mm -hmm. And she herself said like, yeah, I had it. And I thought they got it legally. So there wasn't anything I could do to say like, no, I didn't have stolen property on me. Like (laughs) if it was stolen, it was stolen. So yeah, four days in the prison, which is so little time but I yeah so that would be enough for me i think yeah. i'd be like okay i'm done thank yeah. you like, oh. four days i learned my lesson trust me yeah. and i mean she did i, I and yeah. it seems that her sons did as well so yeah, um yeah well, great work yeah. thanks guy that's thanks. A, that is a good way to pick this up yeah <laughs> well season All six right. off to a start yeah that's for certain off to a start <laughs> well thank you everybody for listening remember do your own time do your own number we will talk to you soon bye if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well if you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. How did you feel when you left Siberia? Very relieved. Very relieved. Uh, I don't when Mel Howard came down, he was the captain, and he asked me if I'd, I'd give him that spoon. You know. And I told him, yeah, well, you turned me out of here. And, uh, and he said, well, if you don't throw it out, you're never going to get out of here. And I said, well, I've been down here seven months. I remember telling him, I've been down here seven months of raising a cane down there in Bivalve. And he told me, so he, he laughed. He said, well, you, I'll keep seven more months. You know? He said, now you want out here to throw that spoon out, I'll do it. <laughs> and they took me out. You know, they stick my arm out the door and they put it chain on you the cuff you know and they took me back down to the firehouse and it was it was good because they had a radio they put a radio on the firehouse and they would you know play music through the whole building you know and uh, Duncan running water and, and straw mattress and so I've been sleeping on two blankets for seven months <laughs> <laughs>